So how many of you, when you came to this text, whether it was studying it for this particular study or another time in your life, gave some kind of groan or eye roll? I mean, you could have done it inwardly or oh, outwardly. I mean, if you were honest, have you always been like, yes, submission? <laughs> I bet most of us haven't. I don't know. Probably my mom was always this way, but I'm just kidding. Um, but I mean, I even wondered who'd show up. Like, yeah, I'm not going to go to that one. I, honestly, I wasn't, I told Sarah, I'm like, I don't even know who's going to show up. But um, I don't know all of your backgrounds extensively when it comes to this topic. But I do know that all of us have shaped our understanding of the word submission by what we've seen and heard. Now, it could be great examples and good teaching, and it can be bad examples and bad teaching on this topic. Our text can, tonight can be a source of contention and controversy, especially for women. So I want you to know I've prayed for this text. I've prayed for you ladies with this text. In this age of liberation, talking about submission is countercultural. Submission has so many negative words associated with it, like oppression, subjugation, doormat, dominance. The world can greatly shape and influence our understanding on any topic, but especially controversial ones, or ones that seem controversial. This is not controversial, but the world thinks this is controversial. And we don't want to ever ignore these concepts. We want to understand what the Bible says about these topics. We need to know what God's word says because you can be sure the world will shape your mind into what it wants you to think on this topic. We know that the Bible is God's word and that God is truth and he is life. And our text is God's idea, not man's. And God's ideas are good. So the ideas in this text and all of scripture are good ideas. Because it comes from God who never has a bad idea. So his words in this text are for his glory and for our benefit. So remember back about a month ago, mom taught the first part of chapter four, and she had to re-align re our thoughts with the word hope, because the world has this definition of hope that's more like a wish. Oh, I hope it doesn't snow so I can make it to Bible study. There's no certainty, or biblical hope is an assurance. You know it'll happen because God said it. We have a foundation of knowing it will be there. Well, like today, our text has, we have to approach the text when it comes to submission. And it's not so much I'm going to redefine it. It's more, you, I have to understand the biblical context of submission. And when you understand the context, you will understand what God is getting at when it comes to submission. And I will tell you what submission is and what it is not. But before we get there, this is going to seem weird, so just stick with me. But has anybody ever seen the baseball movie with Kevin Costner called For Love of the Game? Like, why are you bringing this up? I don't even remember everything about that movie. Like, it could be terrible, and I've just went on record saying I watched it. Like, I don't know the rating or anything. But what I do remember about this movie, Costner portrays a veteran pitcher in the big leagues at the tail end of his career trying to prove to himself and others that he still has what it takes to be successful in the big leagues. And the reason I'm bringing this up is there's this thing Costner does as a pitcher. He gets on the mound... And 
um, he becomes, it's like the, the cinema makes you see that he sees and notices everything. The crowds yelling at him, whether it's cheering him on or booing him, the vendors selling their, their food, the, his teammates cheering him on, the opposing team booing coaches. There's just distractions everywhere. Okay. And it's, you know, he's in a big stadium. It's the championship game the screaming fans, all of that's going on. And after becoming aware of his surroundings, he has this statement and he says, clear the mechanism. And this is actually a pitching like thing. And he mentally blocks out what is going on around him. He blocks out all the distractions, distractions that are purposely being done to make him fail. All he focuses on is that catcher and is that mitt. So I want you to all do that. I want you to clear your mechanism with everything this world has influenced you with regards to this text, with regards to the word submission. There's a war going on with Satan. He has used sinful men to pervert and abuse the truths of this text. Satan wants to prevent us in our pursuit to be like Christ on this topic of submission and on the role of wives in marriage. He is the one who's attacking this. So, clear the mechanism, and let's get into our text. So, we always have to be reminded where we are, especially in this part, because like was said at our table, this is one letter. Like, this was, the church was listening to this at one time. We've broken it down because we meet certain weeks, but what was said last week really has to do with what was, what's going on this week and next week. So just to, I know you guys probably could say what the structure of Ephesians is because we say it every week. But remember, the first part, the movement of the letter of thought of Ephesians, we have two sections. The first half is very theological, chapters 1 through 3. Paul focuses on the story of the richness of the gospel and how history came into its climax in Jesus and all his creation and this multi-ethnic community of his followers. The second half of the letter, 4 through 6, Paul explores how the gospel story should affect how we live every part of our life story. How do we act towards everyone because of what Jesus did on the cross for us? Since the start of chapter 4, there has been a focus on how we are a new covenant people. Who needs to live worthy of the gospel, striving for purity and unity? How we are to love and relate to each other in this broader scope. So last week was this and before that was a broader scope of how we are to relate to each other. Um, Last week, ending specifically with that special application of the Christian grace of submission. We see that in 521, submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. That's a general broad command to mutual submission. Chrissy taught us that this text says we submit to one another because of the examples of Christ's sacrificial love giving up our wants and our desires to serve one another. Now this week and next week, our text zooms in on the unity of specific relationships. It's examples of this mutual submission. So this week is the relationship between husbands and wives. Our text basically breaks up into three main parts. There's the focus of the wife, the focus of the husband, and the focus on the mystery of marriage. And these main parts fall under this theme that God designed roles for husbands and wives to reflect the covenant love between Christ and the church. 
So our first focus is the role of the wife. And we see that is where submission comes into play. Wives are to submit to their husbands. We see that in verses 22 through 24. But let me say what submission isn't. The text doesn't teach spiritual inequality. Men and women are equal. Both men and women bear God's image. Both men and women are equal in their standing, and they're equal in their spiritual gifts of service. My sin isn't any greater than Jeff's, nor are the spiritual gifts that I serve Jesus with any less than Jeff's preaching or teaching. They're not less than his gifts. Men and women are equal in their standing and in their spiritual gifts for service. I know you're all familiar with Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I know Becky's going to use this verse next week because both the examples this week and next week are in this verse. I could not use it, Becky. We're just going to have to repeat it again. So that verse screams equality with one another and unity to Christ. Our text is about ordered equality. I'm going to say that again. Our text is about ordered equality where no one is superior or inferior. We just have different roles. Now, maybe some of you, ding, 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 it makes you think of the Trinity. God the Father isn't better than Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't greater than the Father or the Holy Spirit. The Spirit isn't superior to Father or Jesus. All three are equal with distinct different roles. That in and of itself is a whole lesson I could do. And that isn't the focus of the text. But I bring that up because this equal but different roles is not a new concept in Scripture. It's taught in other places, especially with um, the Trinity. So, wifely submission doesn't mean doormat. It doesn't mean slavish obedience. Wifely submission doesn't mean mute. There is no equality in any of that. So, let's talk about what it does mean. God gives the wives a role, a command, to submit to their husbands. And we see that that um, Paul gives two reasons for this submission. Reason number one, wives are to submit to their husbands because of headship. Verse 23. The word head in verse 23 has the idea of authority attached to it after the analogy of Christ's headship over the church. We use the term head today. Think of like head of a corporation or the head of state. These are titles of authority of a leader. So what is the headship in marriage that husbands are called to be? He is to be the leader, but it's, just, it's more than just he's to be the leader. He's to be a servant leader. Look at verse 23. Jesus Christ is the savior of the church, which he is the head of. So too is the analogy of the husband being the head. The husband is to exercise his headship with a savior style of servant leadership. That's really a mouthful, but he is to be, his headship is to be a savior style of servant leadership. Paul defines that headship as being mirrored in how Christ serves as head and savior. It's a balanced declaration. Christ has authority, but he uses it to save. Christ has authority, but he uses it to sacrifice. Christ has authority, but he uses it to serve. It's about how he uses and applies this servant leadership. 
Ephesians 5.23, the focus isn't on the husband's authority, but on the self-giving love of both Christ and the husband. Head is a responsibility. The husband has a leadership role, but it's not to boss the wife around or use his position as privilege. Paul redefines headship here as a servant leader, having the responsibility to love, having the responsibility to give oneself, having the responsibility to nurture. So wives are to submit to their husbands because their husbands have the God-ordained role to be the head like Christ is the head of the church. Reason number two for wives to submit to their husbands. It's the example of submission. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of submission. He submitted to the Father's will to care for the church, to rescue the church to the point of death. Husbands must lead with that kind of love that is willing to die. Now, husbands aren't the wife's savior. Only Christ is savior. Yet this one savior, Jesus, provides the example for the husband's role as head by this way. Jesus cares for the church and honors her as his bride. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So how does this submission look? Well, wives are to be supportive. We see the word respect, another command for wives, in verse 33. The church is responsive to and follows the lead of her Christ. So the wife is to be responsive to the husband with respect to all issues in marriage. There's no suggestion that the wife is being forced. This also fits in with last week's verse, 521, where mutual submission is a response to the joy of being filled with the Spirit, knowing the sacrificial love that was given to you through Jesus. You aren't to submit begrudgingly or with a temper or with stubbornness. You are to submit as to the Lord. I'm not saying submission's easy. Sometimes it feels that way, but if submission feels easy, it's most likely agreement that you have. When Jeff and I feel the same way on something and I like his final decision, I'm not submitting. I'm agreeing with what he's doing. Um, but if I don't like what we've discussed, if we've discussed things and at the end he makes a final decision and I don't like it, that's submission. And I'm supposed to do it not in a stubborn way, not with bitterness. I'm supposed to love him and submit as to the Lord. Again, it's not always easy. I mean, think about it. It's the curse in the garden. When, when God gave the promise a Savior would come, he cursed the ground and he said, women, childbirth's going to hurt and you're going to want to rule over the man. So it's the curse. But God places rules for us and we ultimately have to submit to God. At the end of verse 24, it says wives are to submit in everything or all things. Now, this remark is to a degree rhetorical, as the call would not be for a wife to submit to a husband who's asking her to do something that violates the commands of God. Acts of sin, being subject to abuse, immoral, dangerous circumstances are not in view here. And we know this based on so much scripture telling the believer to be holy. So... Um, the thrust of the statement to submit in all things 
is as long as it's asked as long as the husband is asked to do morally appropriate and not harmful things. Submission should be our response. So two things to note. First, despite the balance of the passage that it seeks with what's required of wives and husbands, which we haven't gotten to yet, nothing here requires the wife to submit only if her husband loves her or that he has to be a believer. Um, 1 Peter 3.1, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives. So there's no contingency here. We are called to submit even if the husband do, isn't doing what God, God calls him to. Because remember, we're ultimately submitting to the Lord. The passage is working to make sure that marriage is not a constant battleground. The second thing to note, obedience isn't something that the husband is to demand, nor does the text say husband should force submission. The wife's relationship to the Lord is the basis. The wife's relationship to the Lord is the motivation. The wife's relationship to the Lord is the qualification of the submission she gives to her husband. Our submission to our husbands is an act of worship to God. Remember, wives are given to husbands as a helpmate. We are equals. Our counsel, our encouragement, our gifts, our discernment, our wisdom is important and very valuable to him. We can be such a great source to our husbands. So now Paul turns to the husband. This is our second focus. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The shift of focus is now on the role of husband, and he is called to love his wife, verses 25 through 30. Paul, through Christ's example, tells the husband how to love. He gave the wives reasons why they should submit, but Paul dedicates twice the amount of verses to the husbands. Paul says they should love because Christ loved the church. That's the why to the husbands. But Paul also uses the bulk of the husbands' verses to describe how the husbands are to love. And, I, and we see it broken down into three sections of how they are to love. Sacrificial, sanctifying, and self-giving. So verse 25, we see sacrificial love. This is how the husbands are to love. Sacrificial love involves death. I mentioned this before, but the of the example of Christ dying, giving himself up for the church. I don't mean a husband has to die, but a husband doesn't, but a husband has to repeatedly face the call to die to self for the sake of his wife. This is shown in putting her needs before his. Sacrificial love dies to self and serves the one it loves. I mean, we can show sacrificial love in lots of relationships. When you die to self and put someone else first. But a husband is commanded to do this. Sacrificial love is shown in praying for his bride, as Christ does for the church. Husbands should pray for their wives' spiritual life. He should pray for, their, for her struggles and her temptations. He should pray for her friendships for her passions and dreams. Sacrificial love is attentive. How can a wife see sacrificial love if the husband isn't with her? Christ loves his church and rejoices in her presence. So the second kind of love a husband's supposed to have is sanctifying or cleansing love. We see this in 26 and 27. This type of love is a goal. 
Verse 26 says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Jesus' death has a purpose, to make the church into something special, to set her apart from the rest of the sinful world and cleanse her by the word. Jesus sacrifices the church for the church and husband should, should love in a way to sanctify their wives. The idea of being sanctified means to be set apart for something, no longer being common or profane. Christ sets apart us for God's service. Paul reinforces this idea of cleansing with an image of a bath. Now picture an extension of bridal Im imagery tied to the bath of a bride she took before her wedding. Now when we think about getting ready for a wedding, we have like nails and hair and tanning and like dresses and all like there's way more we think about, but Paul Paul picks a bath. And maybe it has to do with how often those people bath in the, that time period. I don't know. But he picks a bath. <laughs> the bath cleansed her for the presentation at the wedding, an event where she could be her best, where she is beautiful, where she can stand in the beauty that Christ has given her, her sins forgiven and Jesus' righteousness covering her. So there is a cleansing that Christ makes possible that prepares his bride, the church, for its union with him. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Christ has committed himself in his relationship with the church. He's washed her from her sin and preparing her for the glorious destiny with himself. Husbands are called in like manner to love in a way that adapts their lives to their wife's needs and to provide for their growth and development. A loving husband is one of the great tools God gives wives to progress in her sanctification. I mean, just the fact that you ladies with little ones are here tonight, it's because your husbands see the value of Bible study and the growing in, in your sanctification for them to go, yes, for sure I'll stay home. Hopefully that was his attitude, but you're here, right? As God's word and spirit fill the husband, this is what Chrissy taught on last week, being filled with the spirit. We see that in verse 19. As God's word and spirit fills the husband, he lives out what it means to be a follower of Christ. As her loving head, a husband serves his wife and he prays for his wife. A husband adores her with unconditional love. He speaks God's word to her. He encourages her and supports her in her gifts for the church. He points out sin and then points her to Christ. Oh, how great a loving husband is who loves his wife in these ways. That moves us into the third kind of love a husband has for his wife. Self-giving love, verses 28 through 30. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The call is for husbands to love their wives as part of their own identity, as if they were permanently attached, just like their own bodies. Self-care comes naturally. So should the kind of love a husband and wife have with each other. As Christ loved and gave, so too should the husband love and give. Think, think of that one flesh that's mentioned in verse 31. Now, it's a quote from Genesis, but that oneness brings unity to a marriage. For a husband to love his wife in an, as an extension of his loving 
For a husband to love his wife is an extension of his loving and caring for himself. The idea of a wife being a a part of a husband's self is important. It means marriage isn't supposed to be a tug of war for power. It's not the duty of a wife to tell him to love her, and it's not the duty of a husband to tell his wife to submit. It's her responsibility before the Lord to submit, and it's his responsibility before the Lord to love. A husband and wife should seek to be one voice on a topic. Speak, talk, inform, persuade, but at the end you are to be one voice before the Lord. Now Jeff has said this publicly, so I can totally say this, but he knows he's foolish when he doesn't get my counsel. He says that. He knows that God designed me, made me, molded me to help him in his walk, his spiritual walk in this life. And that's how all of you have too. Jeff and I say all the time that we're on the same team. We are the same team in one flesh. This isn't self-love, but self-giving love for something greater. And more. it's more than about one's own self. In verse 29, it says, For no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and takes care of it, just as Christ does the church. This statement has to do with care and nurturing of the marriage as being for the husband like caring for himself. Paul urges the husband to see his wife as an integral part of who he is, reflecting the example of Christ's care for the church. Now, just like with wives, the command to husbands to love isn't contingent on how she submits. He is to love her sacrificially in a way that sanctifies and selfishly, even if his wife never submits to him. The grammar for the husband's command is present imperative, and I might have lost some of you, but the reason I bring this up is the grammar makes it so this, that this command is a constant responsibility. It's not a one-time thing to love her. He is to always love her no matter what. This is the kind of love that's an act of worship. Just like we said, submission is an act of worship for the wife. Both the role of wife to submit and the role of husband is to love are supposed to have an attitude of selflessness. Husbands are to be a giver and server, looking for her growth and her best interest. Each partner in this passage is looking at how to give positively to the relationship, putting each other first, like Christ put us first by dying and taking on God's wrath for us. And after all that's said about how wives and husbands should act, Paul speaks further on the idea of marriage. Paul's third focus is about this mystery of marriage. And this mystery of marriage brings meaning. We see that in verses 31 through 34. I'm just going to read it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of one of you... Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what is this mystery and what's the meaning in light of what we just read in 22 through 30? Well, I actually want you all to turn back to Genesis because verse 31 is a quote from Genesis. If you can go to Genesis 2, I want us to look at verses 21 through 24 because I want you to see the original context of what Paul is quoting from. So Genesis 2, 
21 through 24. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here's our text quote, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So unlike all of the animals that went before Adam, where God was showing that they were paired up, there was no pair for Adam. This woman that God gave Adam is now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. She was taken out of his side. She is of the same essence as him. They are both image bearers of God. So this man with this new partner will leave his mother and father and they will live a lifelong covenant together, a lifelong commitment to each other. So if we go back to our verses, 31 through 33, when Paul references Genesis 2, he said, that's a mystery and it's profound and it refers to Christ in the church. Why does he say it's a mystery and why is this profound? Well, think about it. There was no incarnate Christ back in the garden, nor was there a redeemed church. And yet here Paul refers back to the garden and builds his entire understanding of marriage on the analogy of Christ in the church. Now think about the verses we just went through, 22 through 30. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husband is head as Christ is head. As the Christ submits to the church, so the wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself, so should husbands love their wives. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes as Christ does the church. Paul is clearly building his entire understanding of the meaning of marriage around the interpretation of this mystery. The understanding of marriage as a man leaving mother and father, holding fast to his wife, is not a temporary thing. It's a lifelong commitment. Holding fast, not grasping, then letting go some years later. Not letting her drop when things don't go well, but hold fast and the two become one flesh. That is the mystery. Now, I, I'm not talking about you can never divorce. That's a whole other topic. But in the perfectness of marriage, to reflect what Christ in the church is, he is not to let go. He is to hold fast. And Paul says, this is great and this is profound. What Paul's saying is that it, this understanding of marriage, refers to Christ and the church. Let's turn back to chapter 1. Way back in September. Yeah, we, did, we started in September. Look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Even as he, it's talking about God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So twice, chose and predestined, we see here that the plan to have marriage mean Christ in the church is based on what God already saw in his electing and predestining purposes for the church. When Paul says in our text in verse 32, the mystery is profound, 
and I'm, I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church. He's saying when Christ came into the world and died for his bride to bring her to himself and to cleanse her and to make her his people, God didn't look around and go, oh, look, marriage. Let's use marriage to explain Jesus and Christ and the church. No, no, no. It's the opposite. Marriage wasn't used to clarify the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus in the mind of Christ was used at the very beginning of creation to give meaning to marriage. So after all this unpacking and breaking down today's text, so what? What does this mean to me? God is telling wives, give up your self-centeredness. Because I'm talking to wives here. I mean, I talked a lot about the husband. But what I need to tell you, God is telling wives, give up your self-centeredness. Take seriously what you are to share and contribute to your husband. And actively encourage your husband. Wives, you are obeying the command of God that he's given you when you submit to your husbands. Are you doing that? Are you obeying the command God has given you? And are you submitting to your husbands? If you aren't, repent and ask God to forgive you and help you so you, as you go forward. If you are submitting, are you doing it with a heart that's an act of worship to God? Or are you doing it begrudgingly, bitterly, whether outwardly moaning about it or maybe you're doing it inwardly? If you're doing it and that's sinful, repent. Ask God to help you. Submit to your husband. Ask him to help you move forward so you can worship God in your submission. Wives, if you aren't submitting in a way that honors God, you don't look like this new covenant community Paul has been talking about in the letter of Ephesians. That's us. We're the covenant community. We are God's community, his family. And to not submit the way God calls us to takes away glory from him, and it makes you seem like the world. Amen. Wives, you might be thinking, my husband isn't like anything Courtney described. Well, then pray for him. You can't change him, but God can. Talk to him about this text. Not in a, you stink, look at this, but like talk to him about how you've been encouraged, what you've learned. I at my table already had two women talk about their text with their husband, and they were talking about the awesomeness of it. And that was so encouraging because it's so easy for us to read this and be like, he ain't like that. And when you go to a text, you're not supposed to think of your brother, your sister, your husband, your whoever. You're supposed to think of yourself in the text. Brian Chappell calls it the fallen condition focus. Who's the bonehead in the text? Who's the one sinning? That's you. You can learn from that because you've probably done that or you might do that. That's like, you know, the story of David and Goliath. You're not David. Jesus is David. He's the Savior. You're the trembling Israelites. Well, don't look at this text and focus on what you don't have or your husband. Look at this text and focus on you and what God has called you to do. How our church would look if our husbands were loving their wives the way they're called to. How our church would look if wives are submitting to their husbands the way they're called to. Wives, the more your husband grows in the spirit, knows the word, the more he'll love you in the way he's called to. And then you'll want to submit to him because he'll be putting you first. And then you'll want to put him first. And it's just like this perfect harmony of what marriage is supposed to be. It's sin that's crumbled this. It's our selfishness. It's, it's 
It's the sin that has broken this, this perfect unity that's supposed to be. Pray for your husbands, encourage them to grow, encourage them to use their gifts for God, but pray for yourself. Pray that you will be the submissive wife you're called to be. Now, there's a single lady in the group, and I get that. And I have to tell you, Stephanie, when I was reading this, all I kept thinking of was my girls and how I'm like, I have to show them this so they can look for the man who will do this. I don't want them to date or look at someone who already struggles with caring for others or her. Like, this is a nice rubric of what you need to look for. And so I pray that you can find that. I pray that they can find that. I was really convicted, yes, myself, but I just, my heart was just aching for what I want to share with my girls. I've, I've said things like, you need to find a man of God, and he needs to love God more than you, and that kind of stuff. But this is so much more, and I was just super excited about that. Um, but also, like, if you're a widow, if you're single, if you're married, this is what you can encourage your friend who's a wife. This is text for to iron sharpen iron. Mm -hmm. This is text for me to go, I'm going to pick on Sherry because I know she won't mind. Sherry, how are you submitting? Or she can point out to me, Courtney, that wasn't submission. She probably would do it nicer than that. But I mean, this is, this is what we're called as a church to do. We are a covenant community. We have, God has set us apart to look different. And the world thinks this is foolish. I remember as a young wife, I mean, it's probably two weeks after my honeymoon, I remember driving home going, I like this marriage thing. I don't know about that submission. <laughs> but, like, nothing had entered our marriage to where I had to submit. It was all agreement. I thought I could, like, do this marriage thing without that submission part. That shows you the type of premarital counseling I had. So <laughs> I was talking about how... Not everyone has great premarital counseling. But, I mean, praise God that he brought discernment to what the scripture says on this topic. And like our table said, the world thinks this is foolish, and if you show this to someone who isn't a believer, they don't have the spiritual new man in them to see the beauty of this text. It isn't that you have to write your understanding in the definition of submission. You have to write your understanding of what is the context. We are called to be like Jesus, and Jesus is the ultimate one who submitted. Why wouldn't we do that? Like, you know, drop the mic. Be like Jesus right here. That's, that's it. But how wonderful God gave us all these verses to describe and point out why we should do, why we should submit and to show husbands how they can to love us. 